Chapter Two of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter Two. Thus far into the bowels of the land have we marched on without impediment. Richard the Third. While I remained in Memphis, my friend, who was brought into familiar contact with leading secessionists, gave me much valuable information. He insisted that they were in the minority, but carried the day because they were noisy and aggressive, overawing the loyalists who stayed quietly at home. Before the recent city election, everyone believed the secessionists in a large majority, but when a union meeting was called, the people turned out surprisingly, and as they saw the old flag, gave cheer after cheer, with tears in their voices. Many, intimidated, stayed away from the polls. The newspapers of the city, with a single exception, were disloyal, but the union ticket was elected by a majority of more than three hundred. Tell me exactly what the wrongs and grievances are of which I hear so much on every side. It is difficult to answer. The masses have been stirred into a vague, bitter, sore-headed feeling that the South is wronged, but the leaders seldom descend to particulars. When they do, it is very ludicrous. They urge the marvelous growth of the North, the abrogation of the Missouri Compromise, done by Southern votes, and that freedom has always distanced slavery in the territories. Secession is no new or spontaneous uprising. Every one of its leaders here has talked of it and planned it for years. Individual ambition and wild dreams of a great southern empire, which shall include Mexico, Central America, and Cuba, seem to be their leading incentives. But there is another, stronger still. You can hardly imagine how bitterly they hate the democratic idea, how they loathe the thought that the vote of any laboring man, with a rusty coat and soiled hands, may neutralize that of a wealthy, educated, slave-owning gentleman. Wonder why they gave it such a name of old renown, this dreary, dingy, muddy, melancholy town. Thus Charles Mackay describes Memphis. But it impressed me as the pleasantest city of the South. Though its population was only thirty thousand, it had the air and promise of a great metropolis. The long steamboat landing was so completely covered with cotton that drays and carriages could hardly thread the few tortuous passages leading down to the water's edge. Bales of the same great staple were piled up to the ceiling in the roomy stores of the cotton factors. The hotels were crowded, and spacious and elegant blocks were being erected. A few days earlier, in Cleveland, I had seen the ground covered with snow, but here I was in the midst of early summer. During the first week of March the heat was so oppressive that umbrellas and fans were in general use upon the streets. The broad shining leaves of the magnolia and the delicate foliage of the weeping willow were nodding adieu to winter. The air was sweet with cherry blossoms, with daffodils that come before the swallow dares and take the winds of March with beauty violets dim, but sweeter than the lids of Juno's eyes or Cytherea's breath. On the evening of March 3rd I left Memphis. 
a thin-visaged sandy-haired angular gentleman in spectacles who occupied a car seat near me though of northern birth had resided in the gulf states for several years as agent for an albany manufactory of cotton gins and agricultural implements a broad-shouldered roughly dressed sun-browned young man whose chin was hidden by a small forest of beard accepted the proffer of a cigar took a seat beside us and introduced himself as captain mcintyre of the united states army who had just resigned his commission on account of the pending troubles and was returning from the texian frontier to his plantation in mississippi he was the first bitter secessionist i had met and i listened with attent ear to his complaints of northern aggression the albanian was an advocate of slavery and declared that in the event of separation his lot was with the south for better or for worse but he mildly urged that the secession movement was hasty and ill-advised hoping the difficulty might be settled by compromise and declared that travelling through all the cotton states since mr lincoln's election he had found everywhere outside the great cities a strong love for the union and a universal hope that the republic might continue indivisible he was very conservative had always voted the democratic ticket was confident the northern people would not willingly wrong their southern brethren and insisted that not more than twenty or thirty thousand persons in the state of new york were in any just sense abolitionists captain mcintyre silently heard him through and then remarked you seem to be a gentleman you may be sincere in your opinions but it won't do for you to express such sentiments in the state of mississippi they will involve you in trouble and danger the new yorker was swift to explain that he was very sound favoring no compromise which would not give the slaveholders all they asked meanwhile a taciturn but edified listener i pondered upon the german proverb that speech is silver while silence is golden something gave me a dim suspicion that our violent fire-eater was not of southern birth and after being plied industriously with indirect questions he was reluctantly forced to acknowledge himself a native of the state of new jersey soon after at a little station captain mcintyre late of the army of the united states bade us adieu at grand junction after i had assumed a recumbent position in the sleeping car two young women in a neighboring seat fell into conversation with a gentleman near them and a droll colloquy ensued learning that he was a new orleans merchant one of them asked do you know mr powers of new orleans powers powers said the merchant what does he do gambles was the cool response bless me no what do you know about a gambler he is my husband replied the woman with ingenuous promptness your husband a gambler ejaculated the gentleman with horror in every tone yes sir reiterated the undaunted female and gamblers are the best men in the world i didn't know they ever married i should like to see a gambler's wife well sir take a mighty good look and you can see one now the merchant opened the curtains into their compartment and scrutinized the speaker a young rosy and rather comely woman with blue eyes and brown hair quietly and tastefully dressed i should like to know your husband madam 
"'Well, sir, if you've got plenty of money, he will be glad to make your acquaintance.' "'Does he ever go home?' "'Lord bless you, yes. He always comes home at one o'clock in the morning, after he gets through dealing Pharaoh. He has not missed a single night since we were married, going on five years. We own a farm in this vicinity, and if business continues good with him next year, we shall retire to it and never live in the city again.' All the following day I journeyed through deep forests of heavy drooping foliage, with pendant tufts of grey Spanish moss. The beautiful Cherokee rose everywhere trailed its long arms of vivid green. All the woods were decked with the yellow flowers of the sassafras and the white blossoms of the dogwood and the wild plum. Our road stretched out in long perspective through great Louisiana everglades, where the grass was four feet in height and the water ten or twelve inches deep. It was the day of Mr. Lincoln's inauguration. One of our passengers remarked, "'I hope to God he will be killed before he has time to take the oath.' Another said, "'I have wagered a new hat that neither he nor Hamlin will ever live to be inaugurated.' An old Mississippian, a working man, though the owner of a dozen slaves, assured me earnestly that the people did not desire war, but the North had cheated them in every compromise, and they were bound to regain their rights even if they had to fight for them. "'We of the South,' said he, "'are the most independent people in the universe. We raise everything we need, but the world cannot do without cotton. If we have war, it will cause terrible suffering in the North. I pity the ignorant people of the manufacturing districts there.' who have been deluded by the politicians, for they will be forced to endure many hardships, and perhaps starvation. After southern trade is withdrawn, manufactures stopped, operatives starving, grass growing in the streets of New York, and crowds marching up Broadway, crying, Bread or blood, northern fanatics will see too late the results of their folly. This was the uniform talk of the secessionists that cotton was not merely king but absolute despot that they could coerce the north by refusing to buy goods and coerce the whole world by refusing to sell cotton was their profound belief this was always a favorite southern theory bancroft relates that as early as sixteen sixty one the colony of virginia suffering under commercial oppression urged North Carolina and Maryland to join her for a year in refusing to raise tobacco, that they might compel Great Britain to grant certain desired privileges. Now the rebels had no suspicion whatever that there was reciprocity in trade, that they needed to sell their great staple just as much as the world needed to buy it, that the South bought goods in New York simply because it was the cheapest and best market that were all the cotton-producing states instantly sunk in the ocean, in less than five years the world would obtain their staple or some adequate substitute from other sources, and forget they ever existed. "'I spent six weeks last summer,' said another planter, "'in Wisconsin. It is a hotbed of abolitionism. The working classes are astonishingly ignorant. They are honest and industrious.' but they are not so intelligent as the negroes of the south they suppose if war comes that we shall have trouble with our slaves that is utterly absurd all my negroes would fight for me a mississippian whom his companions addressed as judge 
denounced the secession movement as a dream of noisy demagogues. Their whole policy has been one of precipitation. They declared, let us rush the state out of the Union while Buchanan is president, and there will be no war. From the outset they have acted in defiance of the sober will of the masses. They have not dared submit one of their acts to a popular vote. Another passenger, who concurred in these views, and intimated that he was a Union man, still imputed the troubles mainly to agitation of the slavery question. The northern people, said he, have been grossly deceived by their politicians, newspapers, and books like Uncle Tom's Cabin, whose very first chapter describes a slave imprisoned and nearly starved to death in a cellar in New Orleans, when there is not a single cellar in the whole city. Midnight found us at the St. Charles Hotel, a five-story edifice, with granite basement, and walls of stucco, that be-all and end-all of New Orleans architecture. The house has an imposing Corinthian portico, and in the hot season its stone floors and tall columns are cool and inviting to the eye. "'You cannot fail to like New Orleans,' said a friend, before I left the North. "'Its people are much more genial and cordial to strangers than ours.' I took no letters of introduction, for introduction was just the thing I did not want. But on the cars, before reaching the city, I met a gentleman with whom I had a little conversation, and exchanged the ordinary civilities of travelling. When we parted, he handed me his card, saying, "'You are a stranger in New Orleans, and may desire some information or assistance. Call and see me, and command me if I can be of service to you.' He proved to be the senior member of one of the heaviest wholesale houses in the city. Accepting the invitation, I found him in his counting-room, deeply engrossed in business, but he received me with great kindness, and gave me information about the leading features of the city which I wished to see. As I left, he promised to call on me, adding, "'Come in often. By the way, to-morrow is Sunday. Why can't you go home and take a quiet family dinner with me?' I was curious to learn the social position of one who would invite a stranger, totally without endorsement, into his home circle. The next day he called, and we took a two-story car of the Barone Street Railway. It leads through the Fourth or Lafayette District, more like a garden than a city, containing the most delightful metropolitan residences in America. Far back from the street, they are deeply embosomed in dense shrubbery and flowers. The tropical profusion of the foliage retains dampness and is unwholesome, but very delicious to the senses. The houses are low, this latitude is unfavorable to climbing, and constructed of stucco, cooler than wood, and less damp than stone. They abound in verandas, balconies, and galleries, which give to New Orleans a peculiarly mellow and elastic look, much more alluring than the cold, naked architecture of northern cities. My new friend lived in this district, as befits a merchant prince. His spacious grounds were rich in hawthorns, magnolias, arborvitaes, orange, olive, and fig trees, and sweet with the breath of multitudinous flowers. Though it was only the 10th of March, myriads of pinks and trailing roses were in full bloom. Japan plums hung ripe, 
while brilliant oranges of the previous year still glowed upon the trees his ample residence with its choice works of art was quietly unostentatiously elegant there was no mistaking it for one of those gilt and gaudy palaces which seemed to say look at the state in which croesus my master lives lo the pictures and statues the brussels and rosewood which his money has bought behold him clothed in purple and fine linen faring sumptuously every day three other guests were present including a young officer of the louisiana troops stationed at fort pickens and a lady whose husband and brother held each a high commission in the rebel forces of texas all assumed to be secessionists as did nearly every person i met in new orleans upon first acquaintance but displayed none of the usual rancor and violence in that well-poised agreeable circle the evening passed quickly and at parting the host begged me to frequent his house this was not distinctively southern hospitality for he was born and bred in the north but in our eastern cities from a business man of his social position it would be a little surprising had he been a philadelphian or bostonian would not his friends have deemed him a candidate for the lunatic asylum new orleans march sixth eighteen sixty one taking my customary stroll last evening i sauntered into canal street and suddenly found myself in a dense and expectant crowd several cheers being given upon my arrival i naturally inferred that it was an ovation to the tribune correspondent but native modesty and a desire to blush unseen restrained me from any oral public acknowledgment just then an obliging bystander corrected my misapprehension by assuring me that the demonstration was to welcome home general daniel e twiggs the gallant hero you know who stationed in texas to protect the government property recently betrayed it all into the hands of the rebels to prevent bloodshed his friends wince at the order striking his name from the army rolls as a coward and a traitor and the universal execration heaped upon his treachery even in the border slave states they did their best to give him a flattering reception the great thoroughfare was decked in its holiday attire flags were flying and up and down as far as the eye could reach the balconies were crowded with spectators and the arms of long files of soldiers glittered in the evening sunlight one company bore a tattered and stained banner which went through the mexican war another carried richly ornamented colors presented by the ladies of this city there were pelican flags and lone star flags and devices unlike anything in the heavens above the earth beneath or the waters under the earth but nowhere could i see the old national banner it was well on such occasion the stars and stripes would be sadly out of place after a welcoming speech pronouncing him not only the soldier of courage but the patriot of fidelity and honor and his own response declaring that here at least he would never be branded as a coward and traitor the ex-general rode through some of the principal streets in an open barouche bareheaded bowing to the spectators he is a venerable-looking man apparently of seventy his large head is bald upon the top but from the sides a few thin snow-white locks utterly oblivious of the virtues of the twig's hair dye streamed in the breeze footnote 
in mexico general twiggs while applying some preparation to a wound in his head found it restoring his hair to its natural color an enterprising nostrum vendor at once placed in market and advertised largely something which he styled the twiggs hair dye dr holmes makes this incident a target for one of his parthian arrows how many a youthful head we've seen put on its silver crown what sudden changes back again to youth's empurpled brown but how to tell what's old or young the tap-root from the sprigs since florida revealed her fount to ponce de leon twigs End footnote. he was accompanied in the carriage by general braxton bragg the little more grape captain bragg of mexican war memory by the way persons who ought to know declare that general taylor never used the expression his actual language being captain bragg give them blank president lincoln's inaugural looked for with intense interest has just arrived all the papers denounce it bitterly the delta which has advocated secession these ten years makes it the signal for a war-whoop war is a great calamity but with all its horrors it is a blessing to the deep dark and damning infamy of such a submission such surrenders as the southern people are now called upon to make to a foreign invader he who would counsel such he who would seek to dampen discourage or restrain the ardor and determination of the people to resist all such pretensions is a traitor who should be driven beyond our borders foreign invader is supposed to mean the president of our common country the submission denounced so terribly would be simply the giving up of the government property lately stolen by the rebels and the paying of the usual duties on imports march eighth the state convention which lately voted louisiana out of the union sits daily in lyceum hall the building fronts lafayette square one of the admirable little parks which are the pride of new orleans upon the first floor is the largest public library in the city though it contains less than ten thousand volumes in the large hall above are the assembled delegates ex-governor moton their president a portly old gentleman of the heavy father order sits upon the platform below him at a long desk mr wheat the florid clerk is reading a report in a voice like a cracked bugle behind the president is a life-size portrait of washington at his right a likeness of jefferson davis with thin beardless face and sad hollow eyes there is also a painting of the members and a copy of the secession ordinance with lithographed facsimiles of their signatures the delegates you perceive have made all the preliminary arrangements for being immortalized physically they are fine-looking men with broad shoulders deep chests well-proportioned limbs and stature decidedly above the northern standard end of chapter two